Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by my course, Rest Assured. If you've been struggling with falling asleep, or staying asleep, or just not waking up feeling well-rested, you've come to the right place. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI, is the gold standard intervention in the management of insomnia. Rest Assured is a digital course that walks you through CBTI, step-by-step, with everything you need to succeed. Each of the six weekly modules guides you through some important background information for the different techniques, explores the evidence-based techniques in detail, provides multiple examples of exercises so you can find the one that works for you, and reviews the work you've completed since the last module. And rest assured, it's just not another DIY left to your own devices, but rather, you get direct access to me, a board-certified sleep physician in twice-monthly office hours, where you can ask me face-to-face any questions you may have about the course material. So check out www.wellrestedmd.com slash RA to learn more. That's wellrestedmd.com slash RA. Or just head to the homepage and click on courses to learn more. Enjoy the episode. Hey there, friends and neighbors. You're listening to the Well Rested Podcast, episode number 29, The Expanding Circle. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Lennon. Did you know that just caring about yourself and others can actually improve your sleep? that expanding your circle of concern can make a world of difference? In this week's episode, I'll be reviewing what it means to expand the circle, why you might want to, and how to do it with a practical exercise and compassion. The Expanding Circle is a 1981 classic by Peter Singer, updated in 2011, in which he lays out some of the evolution and sociobiology of ethics. The basic premise is that moral and ethical concerns generally grow out from the center, the self, to include wider circles of first family and tribe, then nation, then all humanity, and eventually all living creatures, each filling wider and wider concentric circles, expanding our circle of ethical concern. One of his basic arguments is that concern for ourselves and even our tribe is essentially not moral, but rather a biological process. In essence, I, as the vehicle for my genes, am most concerned about my survival to pass along said genes to my offspring, and then help ensure their survival long enough to pass down a smaller portion of my genes to the next generation, and so on and so on. But my children only possess half my genes. Similarly, my siblings may also share about half my genes. My aunts and uncles about a quarter of my genes. My cousins share about one-eighth of my genes, and so forth. So I am also interested in their survival, well-being, and reproduction. Altruism, through this kind of kin selection, supports the idea of multi-level selection. That while the main arena of evolutionary pressure is at the level of the gene, there are also less important but still real levels of selection including kin and social groups. Understanding the mathematical genetic similarity proportions prompted J.B.S. Haldane to quip, I would lay down my life for two brothers, or eight cousins. But obviously, blind genetics is not the only reason we may behave with one another, with reciprocity and reputation playing growing roles as well. But this is not meant to be a treatise on moral evolution. Suffice it to say, Singer believes that ethical behavior among relatives doesn't count as ethical behavior. That it is rather just biology to be nice to the in-group, to get along with your tribe, a survival tactic among those who share some portion of their genes. Morality, he argues, begins when we start expanding ethical behavior beyond the confines of our exclusive in-groups and tribes. That as we apply human reason, or what Kant famously coined the categorical imperative, to our interactions to outgroup members, to those beyond our tribe or even nation, that is true morality. Behaving ourselves 
among those with whom we share little to no genetic relationship. Although one can make a similar evolutionary selection argument at the level of the species, not just at the level of the gene, individual, kin, social group level, given that every single human being shares the overwhelming majority of their genes, about 99.9%, say compared to chimpanzees, with whom we share only about 98.8%. But its bottom line is basically the golden rule on steroids. However, you would ever want to be treated, no matter what the circumstance, that is how you should behave toward anyone and everyone, no matter your familiarity with them. Your circle of self-interest should encircle every member of Homo sapiens. That in the same way you are concerned about your own well-being and the well-being of your loved ones, as an ethical and moral individual, so too should you be concerned about the well-being of all humanity, of all living creatures. Now, this is not some notion that this Australian philosopher just came up with on his own 30 years ago, not even close. In fact, this notion, what we now call cosmopolitanism, was described millennia ago. Today, we view the modern cosmopolis as a city inhabited by people from all over. And that kind of environment essentially forces a tolerance of diversity. You can walk down the street of a 21st century cosmopolis and hear different languages, smell recipes being prepared from every corner of the planet. But does cosmopolitanism make you an ethical person? In the 2nd century CE lived a man named Hierocles. Some of his writings survive today. He described the notion of oikiosis, or self-ownership, that all animals, from birds to reptiles to humans, have self-perception, a sense of identity, and the me-ness that is distinguished from everything else, which is viewed as the primary and most basic faculty of animals. And being aware of oneself and oneself in relation to others is the basis for ethics or behavior. This faculty is actually located in the right parietal cortex and is the subject of some pretty cool studies on people experiencing becoming one with the universe, like a uh, peyote shaman when this region is turned off chemically, electrically, or by injury. But that's a subject for another episode. Back to Heracles. He also identified that there are concentric circles of oikiosis, expanding circles of self-ownership, of responsible behavior. At the center was the individual's human mind. The next circle contained the immediate family. Next, the extended family. Next, the local community. Next, the neighboring communities. Next, the country. And finally, the entire human race in the outermost circle. And according to Heracles, 2,000 years before Peter Singer, the ultimate moral task of mankind is to collapse all of the circles in towards the center, enveloping all of humanity within the innermost circle to feel the same degree of ownership and responsibility to all people as we do to ourselves and closest loved ones. That being a good person is not about taking care of yourself. It's not about loving your family and taking care of those closest to you. The mark of the moral person is applying that same kind of care, of respect, of good-natured interaction, of love, towards everyone else. Now, I don't want to conflate morality or ethics with compassion, but I think it does provide a good starting point. Compassion is recognizing the fragility, the suffering of another, and being motivated to alleviate it. Unlike sympathy, which is intellectually understanding what another is feeling, or empathy, experiencing firsthand what someone else is feeling, compassion involves not just the psychosocial emotional resonance of sympathy and empathy, but is action-oriented. Not just knowing what someone else is feeling or experiencing what someone else is going through, but actually motivated to action as a result of that resonance. 
Compassion is meeting difficulty with open-heartedness and then moved to do something about it. Research shows that one of the main mediators, the mechanism of action, and how mindfulness helps to alleviate suffering from depression and anxiety, is through the cultivation of compassion, of expanding that circle of responsible caring. Compassion has been shown to reduce what's incorrectly labeled compassion fatigue among caregivers. I say incorrectly because otherwise, why would doing more of what you're already sick of doing make you like the thing you're already doing too much? Compassion fatigue is mislabeled because the phenomena actually describes empathy fatigue. Recall that while empathy refers to sharing an experience of another, being able to put yourself in their shoes and feel what they may feel, compassion, on the other hand, in addition to resonating with another person's state, Compassion specifically requires this motivation to alleviate suffering. Compassion involves the mindful attentiveness to another suffering, a recognition of our common humanity, and that any one of us could potentially find ourselves in that same suffering position, and a desire and motivation to alleviate said suffering. Studies have demonstrated that practicing compassion actually alleviates these symptoms of empathy fatigue, improves quality of life among caregivers, both informal and formal, like healthcare personnel. Compassion has been shown to help people get to bed on time and to fall asleep sooner. In a 2019 study, practicing compassion improved participants' self-reported sleep quality, in addition to helping them stick to their goal times to get into bed. Less procrastinating, less binge-watching, less Instagram scrolling. So let's do a little exercise here in expanding our circles. We start with compassion for ourselves. See our own discomfort and not run away. Too often, we suffer as a result of trying to escape from discomfort, to avoid anything that doesn't make us feel good. The problem is, life is not meant to make you feel good. Life has ups and downs, wins and losses, pleasure and pain. But if any time an inevitable pain comes along, and you won't dare face it, you dissociate by whatever means necessary to not have to come to terms with reality, which has both the beauty and the ugly. And that escape may provide an initial relief, but ultimately ends in more suffering. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Suffering is pain times resistance. And the more you resist the uncomfortable parts of reality, the more you will suffer. Self-compassion takes a willingness to see your stress and suffering for what it is. Not to try to deny or escape it, but to stay present with it, even though it's uncomfortable even though it makes you sad, or if it's painful. The desire to quickly escape uncomfortable feelings, uncomfortable sensations, uncomfortable thoughts, or stress, or suffering, rather than accept them, is the major driver toward unhealthy and unskillful and unhelpful coping strategies, like procrastination, overeating, alcohol use, excessive shopping, gambling, risky behavior, including physical danger, risky sex, Escaping into fantasy like video games, reality TV, or literary fictional worlds. Any addictive behavior. Because there is an immediate and feel-good reward of that dopamine rush. Because you avoided discomfort. You escaped the unideal of reality. You become addicted not to the excuse, to the escape habit because it's so wonderful. You become addicted to not dealing with life as it is. To the variety of human experiences which are bold barbaric, beautiful, but ultimately are actually bearable. So it is then too easy to get addicted to delusion, addicted to not facing reality, especially our internal reality and emotional life, 
which reinforces emotional immaturity and strengthens psychological rigidity. If your dog came in from the backyard soaked from rain, you wouldn't send it back outside or throw a towel at it and expect it to dry itself off because you're too uncomfortable to do it yourself. You wouldn't ignore your dog and jump on TikTok instead. You would sit with your beloved pet and take care of it so you both can go on with your lives. Ignoring the wet dog doesn't improve the smell of your living room or keep your couch cushions dry and free of mud. You either accept and face reality or you suffer. So for an exercise of expanding the circle of compassion, we use loving kindness, sometimes called meta. We invite loving kindness to ourselves, then to other specific individuals, and lastly to all living creatures. And I use the word invite intentionally. We are practicing flexibility. We are not requiring certain conditions or moral behaviors. We are not demanding, forcing morality. And we're not pretending to live in a la-la land where everyone and everything is love and kind and wholesome. We appreciate and accept the caveat that our intention for, our wish for kindness, is met with no guarantee for the result. Nor do we approach life with the Pollyanna naivete that our thoughts alone somehow make the world bend to our will. We engage in these practices to facilitate a sense of compassion, to cultivate the awareness that we are all connected by a shared desire for security, for happiness, for freedom from suffering. That oikiosis that Hierocles described 2,000 years ago. Not a delusion that it will actually work, but to bring about awareness of the connection and as a practice of kindness, even though it's just in your own head. The meditation teacher Thich Nhat Hanh describes ringing a bell in the same way. You may want the bell to ring when you strike it, But maybe you're as clumsy as me and you miss, or the hammer breaks, or you drop the bell, or the bell breaks and doesn't ring. So with the humble understanding that whether the bell rings or doesn't isn't up to you, you invite the bell to ring. In this same manner, we invite loving kindness to ourselves and to others with these meta practices. We begin by finding a comfortable position. It's okay to sit, stand, lay down, whatever is comfortable to you, but not so comfortable that you fall asleep. Well, that's a great outcome overall, that's not the goal for right this instance. You can close your eyes, or if you keep them open, direct your gaze at a neutral spot down on the floor about 6 to 10 feet in front of you. It's okay to wiggle a little, shake off the jibblies and settle in. Take a deep breath or two, deep in through the nose, filling up deep in your belly. And as you exhale, sink a little more into your comfortable position. Now, settle into your normal resting breathing pattern. Not trying to force it one way or another, just breathe to breathe. Stand and know you're standing, sit and know you're sitting. In this relaxed state, get curious about what's going on. Are there any physical sensations you notice? Any sounds? Smells? Weird itches? Any emotions popping up? Perhaps restlessness? irritation, or a feeling that this is stupid and a waste of your time. Many thoughts that pop up. Whatever arises, whatever you notice, it's all good. There's no right or wrong. Just allow whatever sensations, thoughts, or emotions to bubble up without judgment or reaction, and they will gradually fade away till the next bubble arrives. We start by inviting loving-kindness to ourselves by repeating a few key phrases. The exact wording here doesn't matter so much, So if what I say sounds too corny or forced, it's all good. Experiment with what sounds good to you in your own voice. 
May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be safe. May I live with ease. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be safe. May I live with ease. As you recite the phrases, it's fine if your mind wanders. It's okay if you get an odd itch somewhere. Whenever you realize your mind has wandered, smile and return to the phrases. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be safe. May I live with ease. We next invite loving kindness to someone for whom it should be easy. A benefactor, close friend, parent, a child, spouse, or significant other. We again repeat the phrases, inviting loving kindness towards our loved one. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. And may you live with ease. Do not worry if your mind drifts during the exercise. There is no penalty here. We are just cultivating an attitude of compassion, of connection to others, because like us, they too will experience difficulties, pains, hardship. It's part of the common human experience. So may you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. And may you live with ease. We next invite loving kindness to a neutral acquaintance. Maybe it's your kid's bus driver or the cashier at the grocery store or the neighbor two streets over. Someone whom you're not close to, but that you hold a generally positive attitude towards. Picture him or her in your mind. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. May you live with ease. We next direct our invitation for loving kindness toward an adversary. Maybe it's a coworker you sometimes clash with, or a friend who's overly competitive, but in the bad kind of way, or a rival from sports or politics. Picture in your mind this person, what they look like, what they sound like, what they act like when they're being adversarial, and recognize their oikiosis, that they too, like you and me, do not want to suffer. They too are striving for happiness in this difficult world. And recognize that perhaps some of the off-putting behavior is an expression of pain, a manifestation of their suffering. We've all had bad days and not stayed as cool and calm and collected as we would have liked. We all make mistakes sometimes, or a lot of the times. But perhaps if your adversary did not suffer so, you'd find that you're not adversaries after all. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe, and may you live with ease. We now expand the circle to include our entire cosmopolis, our state, our whole nation, or even all of humanity. Here we are. We just find ourselves here. We didn't ask for our heritage. We didn't ask for our upbringing. We're just here, all of us, together on this floating rock. None of us wishes to suffer. Some may think we deserve to suffer for past sins, but that's something else entirely. So we recite once more. May we, all of us, be happy. May we, all of us, be healthy. May we, all of us, be safe. May we, all of us, live with ease. May all beings everywhere be happy. May all beings everywhere be healthy. 
May all beings everywhere be safe. May all beings everywhere live with ease. Practicing intention by repeating these invitations is not meant to be a substitute for real-world action or charity or meant to be an excuse to continue the status quo. But the practice strengthens the foundation from which to act. Thoughts create behavior. Behavior leads to results. This is neuroplasticity. The more you formally practice inviting kindness, like a crazy person repeating these phrases to yourself in your head, the more readily and automatically kindness will be your natural go-to automatic state in the real world. As you deal with yourself, as you relate to your loved ones, as you encounter neutral acquaintances, and as you deal with adversaries, and as you come across all life, kindness will come more readily. So to summarize, look, if you're having a hard time, give yourself a break. No one asked to be born. No one requested certain genes. None of us got to choose how we were raised, who loved us, who punished us, who taught us, who neglected us. We are just here. And as absurd as that is, it is equally absurd for all of us. Each of us was born with a sense of self-protection. You reach your hands out when you fall. You close your eyes when something jumps out at you. And we all have a natural inclination towards those closest to us by genetic relationship or shared experience. But true moral well-being, true ethical behavior requires that we not shun those we don't know well or exclude those who look or act different or only act nice towards those who first acted nice towards us. Recognize that we are all on the same boat, literally hurtling through space at about 67,000 miles an hour around a ball of nuclear explosions. We share a common humanity, whether you like it or not. And when we pay attention, with particular focus on our shared experience of being alive right now, when I can see that you suffer just as I suffer, and that you would prefer to be free of suffering just like I would prefer to be free of suffering, when we practice the attitude cultivate the disposition of being more mindful of our common heritage, regardless of who you voted for, that we all just want to be free of suffering, to be safe, to be healthy, to be happy. That attitude will literally change your life. And it can start by improving your time to fall asleep and your quality of sleep. So expand your circle of concern from self to family, to community, to world, to all the cosmos. May you sleep well.